It's Wednesday, April 29th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor and Motley Fool One, Brendan Matthews, and from Champion Shares Pro, Mike Olson. Happy Wednesday, gentlemen. Hello. Happy Hello. Wednesday. Um, we're going to talk about the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. We're going to do a little preview of that because you guys are just, I believe, in a matter of hours going to be getting uh, on planes to head to Omaha for that. But before we get to that, Earnings Palooza rolls on. And if there were a color of the day for this episode, the color would be red as we talk about Panera Bread, Lumber Liquidators. But we will start with Twitter. First quarter revenue was up 74% from a year ago. That is still lower than expected. The company lowered guidance for the rest of the fiscal year. And not surprisingly, the stock down more than 20%. Brendan, I'll just start with you. How bad was this? Because this this seems like, among other things, like Twitter, the company, or I should say Twitter, the business, and in particular, Twitter's management is not getting the benefit of the doubt from anybody. No, and it didn't help that their earnings were leaked an hour before they were supposed to, an hour before the market closed. Um, I think it, it's just a, this isn't a new and an emerging business, um, and predicting it short term, I think, is very difficult. Long term, we don't know what will happen with Twitter. I think there's obviously a lot of a lot of potential, um, but it's a twenty-six billion dollar company, so it, people are expecting a lot. And if management doesn't live up to that every quarter, Wall Street's going to punish them. Well, and they are again; they're not getting the benefit of the doubt. And I'm not suggesting that they should, but Mike, they're at a point where they either need to grow revenue more than people are expecting, or they need to grow their user base. Their, their monthly active users grew about 18% year-over-year, right, right. which is a nice number, but that's basically what was expected. So, they either need to blow people away in terms of how many people they're getting on Twitter, or they need to start making some real money. Yeah. So, for me, um, I think the, the fundamental question here, and this is what people are asking, is how, why, and if Twitter can monetize the information they have in that user base. Because when you look at it, you say to yourself, yeah, they're, they have a lot of data, and so they should be able to really effectively source ads. And yet, what you're seeing is you know, their monthly average user base is growing. They are growing the, ad, the run rate of ads per monthly user, but they're still not making any money. And you know, there, there's kind of this broader question which overlays that, which is, you know, is I don't think Twitter is going to be a mass market phenomenon the likes of Facebook, but instead it's going to be more of a trade rag type of thing where there's a niche appeal. You know, as an analyst, I have a Twitter account and I basically use it as a news feed because it's an effective way to see what people I'm interested in hearing from, what they're saying. But the problem here then is you see Facebook, their run rate of revenue per user is 1120. Twitter, 580. Twitter, also not making any money. They like to bring out this adjusted EBITDA figure. Guess what? All they're doing is backing out stock-based comp, which, however you spin it, that's real money spent. If you don't pay your employees in stock, you got to pay them in cash. And uh, so, I, I, I don't really know. There, there doesn't seem to be a plan I can really attach to in terms of like how, how we're going to make this worth more, how we're going to make money, how we're going to grow into that valuation. And you know, moreover, on the on the earnings release being leaked, that's just like, I, I just don't know how that happens. So um, it's it's pretty interesting. And uh, uh, what happened was there's a there's a small financial services firm in New York uh, called I believe Celerity, and they 
among other things, use different programs to scrape websites looking for information. And someone at Twitter inadvertently posted their earnings report on the Twitter website for a very brief amount of time, about an hour before the market closed. The Celerity bots got this information and then, ironically enough, started tweeting the results. And it got to the point where (laughs) yesterday afternoon, Twitter had to contact the New York Stock Exchange and say, can you please halt trading? Because this is... So, I I, I totally agree with you, Brendan. This is a tough business to predict quarter to quarter. I feel very safe about this prediction. Next quarter, Twitter's earnings release is going to be locked up until about 4.30 in the afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That's one I'm pretty confident on. Um, And adding to this, and then then we'll move on, I... Dick Costello, the CEO, who's come polarizing un- figure, who is a little bit of a polarizing figure, has come under a little bit of fire. There seems to be this increasing drumbeat that he needs to go. Someone else needs to be in the corner office, and whether or not that's true, if you're a Twitter shareholder or you're thinking about it, and you may be looking at today as a buying opportunity, just know that that's a distraction. If if what you want is Twitter and its management team to be really focused on the business. All of this, whether it's rumor mongering or it's real, all of this news swirling around Dick Costello is a distraction. And the only thing that makes it go away is really great earnings. So I think at a minimum, you're you're looking at at least another three months of this drumbeat, Brendan. Of well, does this guy need to go? Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where winning cures all ills, and if if People, people can have conflicts with each other or have problems, but if things go well, everybody's happy. And I think things need to go well at, at Twitter for, um, for Dick. The Red continues with Lumber Liquidators. Uh, they reported a, first, a loss for the first quarter, it, whereas previously they were projected to, I think, make about 15 cents per share. On top of that, Chief Financial Officer David Terrell announced he's leaving. And on top of that, the company also announced that the U.S. Department of Justice has advised the company it is seeking criminal charges against lumber liquidators, uh, which is going to cost them around $10 million in legal fees. Holy cow, was this bad, Mike? Yeah. I, I mean, this was just bad after bad. There was, If there's anything good to this quarter, I have no idea what it is. I, I mean, I, I very much agree. This, For me, the loss is really less telling than the CFO departure um, because there's there's been kind of an interesting string of events here I and and this goes back well before the 60 minutes piece on lumber liquidators where you know the story was always that they were a low-cost supplier of quality hardwoods and well before the 60 minutes piece aired their relationships with Chinese suppliers were called into question they said they were going ahead and revamping their supply chain and at that very same time, their gross margins started to suffer and their comps started to decline. And so you then ask yourself this question, does this structural advantage actually exist with respect to them being a low-cost supplier? And that particular circumstance, it's only worsened as these allegations have arisen. You know, and you, you have this sort of compounding effect of you know, whether the allegations of them sourcing harmful hardwoods or laminates are indeed accurate. Um, it's very bad from a PR standpoint. And, you know, in that regard, these things end up becoming reality in some way, shape, or form. Um, 
you then look at all these things in in aggregate or sort of the confluence of events and the fact that the CFO is leaving is not really encouraging. So, you know, I I just think that this is one of these stocks where it could indeed be a very lucrative investment, but a lot of the sort of core reasons you'd own this stock, I feel like they've very much been eroded, or at least that case over the course of the past maybe 18 months. I think what's important for lumber liquidators versus a lot of other companies, it's a consumer-facing brand. And as, as Mike was saying, perception can be reality. And if they're having uh, this bad publicity from 60 Minutes, they're having lawsuits from the government, they've got a CFO leaving, um, people are just less interested in, in buying from them. And I think they're, they reported comp sales for March were down 13%. That's a big hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and we've talked about this before. You look at what happened in China with Yum Brands, where they had poultry supply issues that eventually got fixed. But the brand damage, to your point, Mike, the brand damage is such that you've got some customers saying, "Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care that you you claim that your chicken supply is now mm-hmm. clean." And it may be the same sort of. Obviously, that's one of those things we'll only know over time. But they could be completely exonerated by the Justice Department. Everything could be fine. And from a brand standpoint, a year from now, people who are redoing their homes could be working with a contractor and just saying, "Look, get me a good price, but I don't want to work with Lumber Liquidators." Right. And and I think you know. The, there are two other sort of ancillary points here. The, very, the first one is basically, right as their sales have been declining, Home Depot and Lowe's have actually been seeing strength in these particular categories. The other thing, to your point on whether or not the brand is shot, a key sort of point to the lumber liquidators model has been that this is this sort of Spartan storefront. They're changing that now, but historically that has been the case, where they move a lot of product and, you know, in turn, velocity of product, the extent to which you are moving product, is a critical factor in driving those margins. These guys were doing something like 30% box-level operating margins. That's before interest in tax. Amazing, amazing numbers in the context of the retail business. If you go ahead and you take a little bit of that out, your profitability really gets hit in an outsized way. Panera Bread's first quarter profits fell 25%. I think, Brendan, we're at about the one-year mark from when Ron Shake, the CEO, talked about he made the, the famous mosh pit comments and talked about Panera 2.0, their initiative to remake the inside of a bunch of locations. Any insight into how that's going other than the fact that it's costing money and cutting into their profits? So, I think it's actually it's going well. I think it's going to be a process, though. We have a Panera Bread right across the street from our headquarters, and I see that they're trying a lot of cool things. Um, not all of them are working, but I think that they're going to figure out what works over time in terms of mobile ordering, um, getting the throughput up. And then I think the, the latest announcement, which was kind of weighed on this quarter, was the refranchising uh, announcement. I think that's all part of what is essentially, I think, a turnaround story at Panera Bread. So, what's the refranchising part? Are they are they buying back? Uh, no. So essentially, they so Panera has about nineteen hundred stores that are split evenly about between what's company owned and what's franchise. So I think they're going to take a lot of the underperforming company owned stores and and sell that to a franchisee. Basically, bring in somebody new who's highly motivated motivated to get that store running correctly. Uh, that's going to return some capital to Panera Bread. Uh, and then it's also going to hopefully get those stores performing better. 
The stock, if you take the long view, has has been a very good performer. Over the last couple of years, it's really kind of lagged the market. And I'm wondering, is that a function of just how well it had done previously and it was running up against expectations? Because one of the things we've seen over the last, I would say, eight months or so, one of the narratives, the ripple effects of the lower gas prices is you've got some restaurants, some retail operations that have said, Oh, we're doing slightly better because of the lower gas prices. If that's happening at Panera, it's certainly not showing up in the stock performance. No, I think Panera is a victim of its own success. So what they've always had right is they've had. I think the the food is actually pretty decent. They're in the right market. Fast casual, I think we'll probably agree, is the area of the restaurant market that's really growing. The thing that they've kind of lost track of is the operations and the quality control. So if you think about how efficient things are at Chipotle, how consistent the experience is, it's just not that way at at Panera Bread. And I think over the past couple of years, they've lost their way. And now Ron Shake is trying to get the company back on track. Right. I think I think that's kind of a Brendan just hit on a key point, which is to say that in the restaurant space, what you're really concerned with is scaling those fixed costs, getting customers in and out. And Panera is in sort of an odd space there, where on one hand, they're this sort of second space where you see people sitting there. And then, you know, on the other hand, they want to move people quickly in and out of the stores. And so you have sort of a brand identity, and that culminates in financial challenges, not least. Uh, Fast casual space is quite competitive, and it has become increasingly apparent with the success of you know the likes of Panera, Chipotle, so on and so forth, that this is an area where you can earn great returns on capital if you get this right, and that has attracted competition for them. So you know, they uh, they have some challenges before them. I don't think they're insurmountable, but they need to very much focus on getting those operations right. I agree. One one thing that I think is the most interesting thing that's happened recently, and this pushed the stock up a little bit, is they're going to borrow money and they're going to buy back shares. So they're going to borrow at least five hundred million dollars in shares, and they're going to buy back five hundred million dollars in shares this year. That's about ten percent of their market cap. Yeah, they have an activist in there. So, but they they are they're betting on themselves. Is that I don't know what their track record is like when it comes to share buybacks. Is that something they do frequently? And if so, do they have a good track record? Because let's face it, not every company has a good track record in terms of timing their stock buybacks. As far as I know, this will be their biggest and most important stock buyback bet. I don't know that they've really historically done that. Historically, they've been buy you know opening up new stores. They're restaurateurs, not uh, financial guys. But this so this is a big important bet for them. Right. I think one thing to take note here is you know. More often than not, uh, analysts are a pretty good judge of whether or not a given stock, or a better judge of whether or not a given stock is undervalued, and management is good at you know, knowing the ins and outs of their business. And in this particular case, management is being pushed to do this repurchase by an activist investor. And so that, that gives you some measure, that might give you some measure of confidence. I'm not particularly familiar with this activist investor, so I couldn't say, but... Um, Brendan, do you have a like a go-to meal when you go to? Because it sounds like you've been there a few times. Do you have like a, a particular sandwich or soup you're going with? So the thing I like recently that is is pretty good is the chicken broth bowls. I get the soba noodles. Oh, really? But I, think I, haven't, I haven't tried those yet. It's good, but really the best thing that they've got there is they've got a hibiscus iced tea. No, no sugar, no caffeine. Really good. Tom Gardner, I think, told me that that lowers your blood pressure and it's really tasty. Uh, Cobb salad all the way. If it's if, if there's no caffeine, I, I can't 
see myself drinking that. I, I I go for the I go for the pick two because you get a little bit of soup, half a sandwich. I, I love that. I, I like their sandwiches, but honestly, their their sandwiches are really big. So yeah, half I mean, a sandwich that does. A, it's a big salad too. I mean, that's it's like a salad that's you know the size of my torso or something <laughs> like that. Uh, this weekend is the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. It is the uh, this is kind of a big one. It's the. 50th anniversary of Warren Buffett buying this company. Uh, somewhere north of 40,000 people are descending upon Omaha, Nebraska for this. You guys are going to be there. We're sending a whole team of fools. And by the way, for anyone listening who's interested, the big marathon session of, of Q&A with Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett that takes place on Saturday we're going to be, uh, you guys uh, are part of the team that's going to be doing a live chat, basically live blogging that event. So, and you don't have to go to Omaha to get the details. Our team is going to be live blogging that. You can just go to fool.com. You don't have to get up that early either. You don't have to get up that <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, because you, you guys do have to get up that early. Oh, we do. Um, before we get to sort of the. Um, the more fun parts of the meeting. In terms of the business, when you look at Berkshire Hathaway right now, uh, and I'll just start with you, Mike, as an analyst, what's one thing that stands out to you about their business? Yeah, so one thing that's very interesting, and I think this could prove to be actually one of Buffett's master strokes when we look at this retrospectively, but I think it stands to reason that Burlington, Northern, Santa Fe, and Mid American, the regulated utilities, are actually the new insurance. Um, and by that, I mean the insurance companies have gotten a lot of very positive press for their ability to generate float. And these are basically you go ahead and you get paid the premium up front on a given insurance policy. And so then you have a costless source of funds to invest. To the extent you make money on that policy and you write the same amount of business going forward, you have a costless asset with which you can invest. Now, interestingly, the utilities, so BNSF and MidAmerican, they're regulated utilities. And basically, they have a de facto monopoly position in exchange, and in exchange, they're regulated. Their returns are somewhat capped. Um, And so, their returns are predicated upon their asset base. What they have done is they've continuously invested in this asset base and depreciated the assets very quickly. And Doing that, they basically get a tax preference where they get paid a little bit of cash up front. Um, the deferred tax liabilities, which is the number that we're looking at right here, it has grown $10 billion since they acquired BNSF. What that basically means is they have $10 billion worth of costless funds. And I think you're going to see that trend continue. Buffett has continuously invested in BNSF and MidAmerican. Expect that to continue. Brendan, what about you? What stands out about, and obviously it's a huge business with, with so many different divisions, but what, what's one thing that stands out to you? I like to compare Berkshire to like a S&P 500 fund because it's so big, it's so diversified, but I think it's actually maybe better than a, than a I think will do better than an index, uh, S&P index fund because it's a higher quality set of businesses and it's run by probably a a leader that's more competent on average than those existing businesses. So I think it's very likely to beat the market, um, but only by a little bit. I think it's very it's probably unlikely to lose in the market and it's unlikely to destroy the market. I think it's very likely to beat the market by a little bit from today's price. That's kind of an equity bond. That's the way I like to think about it. And I think to to Brendan's point, a big sort of concern with Berkshire has been, you know, it's whatever, a $225 billion company, maybe even larger right now. Um, and the the question has been, where are they going to put all this capital? How the, can they continue to outperform? And, you know, there's 
One other thing that I think Buffett has done, which has been extraordinarily intelligent and certainly gotten its share of press, but I don't think it's gotten its full due, is the 3G partnership. Um, You know, you look at the number of consumer products companies in the market cap, 3G's ability to acquire these companies, which earn incredible returns on capital and make them earn even better returns on capital. the, the collected market cap is hundreds of billions in consumer products companies and restaurants. And so I wonder whether or not Todd Combs, Ted Weschler, they're not just puppet masters and 3G is actually the next CIO. I also wonder if, you know, when we go ahead and look out 20 years from now, Berkshire might not be greater parts consumer products company than it is this sort of insurance and industrial conglomerate that it is right now. I think, but for me, you know, when you think about Berkshire as kind of an enhanced index, that gives me a whole lot more confidence in what their future looks like going forward. I know you guys get up before the sun on Saturday morning to get the best possible seats mm-hmm. uh, at the arena. And by best possible seats, uh, and I know this only from the photographs I've seen, you guys are like way high up above. Uh, where the shareholders are sitting, but you get the bird's eye view, mm. um, and they give us good food. Do they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, but you don't mean healthy food, right? Because oh, no, the, I mean, f- just... the food I hear about from Berkshire Hathaway is like dilly bars, diet, you know, cherry coke, and and seized candy, meat, potatoes, Coca Cola. That's that's it. <laughs> Eggs, mm-hmm. uh, chili dogs, French fries. There's a little bit of salad sausage there. gravy. I yeah. think there's in the in the breakfast. Wow, no wonder you're loading up on Cobb salad in advance of that because <laughs> you're certainly not going to eat healthy while you're there. What's uh, Brendan? I'll just start with you. What's one other part of the meeting that you're looking forward to? I know it's not getting up before the sun, but what's one part? That uh, that you enjoy. So one of the things I think is is great, and if you're a runner at all, I really uh, recommend going to the uh, the five k and investing yourself five k. It's really big. Was it like fifteen thousand people? It was bigger it was than huge that. Last year, I, uh, I, I was I was not in the top half of it. I don't think, but they give you a great t shirt from Brooks. Uh, very well run event. Uh, gave Tracy Britt a high five as I finished. Got a nice medal that's hanging on my desk. Nice. It's just a fun thing. I, I met. I was wearing my fool hat and I met people who were members and knew the Motley Fool. And I was just talking as I was running. So that's a great. I would add that to any Berkshire weekend. I think our colleague Matt Copenheffer finished. He was in like the top ten, something yeah, like it that. It was something absurd. Yeah. So we're actually we're going to have a Motley Fool team this year, uh, including members who can sign up with us, and we're going to try to get into the top ten. We barely missed it last year. Of course, Brooks wins every year. That's the running shoe company owned by Berkshire. We're not going to beat them, but we're going to try to get into the top ten. Nice. Uh, what's one thing you're looking forward to, Mike? Uh, so one thing that is. I guess it's still it's grown pretty substantially over the course of the. Um, this will be my fourth year going consecutively, but there is a Markel shareholder breakfast the morning after uh, Berkshire. It runs from I don't know if it's ten thirty or eleven o'clock at the Hilton to twelve thirty, and it's basically kind of an inside baseball event where Berkshire, you could say, maybe is, you know. It is much. It is as much a glamorized event, and it is intended to make an impression. Um, the Markel event is primarily attended by this sort of hardcore investors, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I quite enjoy that. So, uh, also one place that we've been to for pizza in the past several years, which is pretty good. I don't know if we're going to make it back there next year, this year, but it is called Zio's Z I O apostrophe S. So, for those of you that are going there. Highly recommended. Never Mike, is crowded. Mike, what do you think of Piccolo's? Uh, 
All right. So, <laughs> what is Piccolo's? Piccolo's is one of Buffett's favorite two restaurants, and this is one circumstance where Brendan's pushing me here because he knows I hate this place. Um, <laughs> it's like for his for his ability to go ahead and you know sort of summon those those folksy aphorisms and the like, which make him very accessible and. You know, indeed, have probably been a contributor to his success. You don't need to go ahead and sell us on this. It's basically like microwave pasta, um, and it's just—it's horrible. It's a complete ripoff. They pull all kinds of people through on Buffett's name on that weekend, and I don't know why anyone would go back. And yet, we continue to go back. I don't—I don't think I'm alone in this, but when I think of cuisine in Omaha, Nebraska. Italian cuisine is not at the top of the list. I yeah I yeah I, I mean there's some good food there actually. I'm sure I there's mean, a lot there... of good food there. I'm just saying I don't I'm not I'm not picking out an Italian restaurant when I'm going to Omaha. I'm well, looking for looking for a steakhouse. Definitely but, don't take piccolos. I'll tell you that. Uh, again, these guys will be part of the team that is live blogging the event on Saturday, so you can go to fool.com to check that out. You can also check out our free ebook which is advice from the Oracle 50 Warren Buffett quotes that will make you a better investor. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is just drop an email to warren at fool.com. That's warren at fool.com, and you can get the free ebook. And it's it's a whole lot more than just 50 quotes from Buffett. Uh, a few of our folks uh, went to work analyzing his investments, his strategies, and, and what we can all learn uh, to become better investors. So, advice from the Oracle, 50 Warren Buffett quotes that'll make you a, a better investor. Just email warren at fool.com. Mike Olson, Brendan Matthews, have a great trip, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 